An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across the nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. If you like an honorable profession, I encourage you to check out another great podcast that's out to give you hope in an often hopeless world. Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Each episode, my friend Spencer Critchley talks to people who are making tremendous positive impacts on our world. The conversations are funny, engaging, and hopeful. Listen to Dastardly Cleverness on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Brian Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, candidate for U.S. Senate Amanda Edwards, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're rounding out our series on senators. In our last episodes, we heard from Kate Bowles from Nebraska and Eric Lesser from Massachusetts. This week, we talked to Georgia State Senator Elena Parent. I've been looking forward to talking to Elena, not just because we went to law school together and she's doing great work in her state, but also because Georgia's on the front lines of so many issues we're facing in this country, from voter suppression to attacks on choice to issues of equity and opportunity. Elena is a consistent and thoughtful leader fighting on the front lines for her community. Enjoy our conversation. Elena Parent, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. I'm so glad to be a guest today. And so while I'm tempted to talk to you uh, and spend uh, all the time talking to you about Virginia basketball, uh, University of Virginia basketball. We won last night. I knew, I knew, I knew you'd be cheering for them. Um, I think. Uh, why don't we start with what's going on in your state? I think um, Georgia is at the front lines of so many issues right now. A lot of them challenging around voter suppression and choice, equity and opportunity. Um, can you give us a sense of what it's like uh, in Georgia right now and what the issues are that are, that that you're fighting for for your community? Georgia's in a really interesting place right now. When I moved here after law school, we actually had a Democratic governor and Democratic state legislature. And Democrats had been in control of state government for generations, really. And that year, fall of 2002, the Democratic governor lost re-election, and it was a huge upset. And over the next few years, both chambers of the legislature flipped, 
and Republicans became um, in total control of state government in 2004. So in the last 15 years, we've had total Republican control, including every statewide office, essentially, although we had some Democratic statewide office holders past 2004, finishing out terms, essentially. Um, but that being said, 15 years is not really that long when you consider how long, how many decades Democrats were in control. And right now, the state is very rapidly becoming purple, as we saw in the 2018 election when Stacey Abrams almost won the governor's mansion. Yeah. Because of that, I think that both parties are in sort of really interesting territory trying to figure out what the best path forward is. For Democrats, we have a lot of things on our side. I mean, Trump is really unpopular in educated suburbs, as we see across the country. And so that's helped Democrats um, at the state level, you know, flip one congressional seat in 18, almost flip another and pick up a lot of legislative seats. And we expect to hopefully continue that same path in 2020. Mm -hmm. Also, it's, you know, Georgia is a really big state and it's a really diverse state. You know, we've long had a really large um, African-American community and Atlanta in many ways has always been sort of the heart of, um, or the, the cradle really of not only civil rights, but also African-American education and economic power. So we've always had a large African-American population that's been pretty staunchly democratic, but you know, like the rest of the country, we're diversifying and we have a lot of, um, you know, Latinos, Asians and, and, you know, everybody else. And so demographically, um, you know, the, the Republican Party sort of doubling down on this strategy of trying to appeal to non-college educated white folks in a state that's as diverse and, you know, really in many ways with Atlanta, you know, pretty highly, has pretty highly educated uh, population is just a shrinking demographic. There's a shrinking demographic for them to try to pull that strategy off in Georgia. So... Georgia Republicans haven't really ever, since I've been in state government for 10 years, they've never really gone the sort of Trump route, at least not that overtly. And now I feel like they're sort of in a position where they have to grapple with it. You know, they're, they're sort of, they're caught like many Republicans, I think, between a base that really is enthused by Trump and their own nervousness about what his tone and style mean for them, especially in a state like this that's really, really diverse. And if they can't start to win more minority voters, it's going to, they're going to start losing in not, in, in the very immediate future here in Georgia. So, but they've tried to do, at least under the prior governor, Governor Nathan Deal, is, you know, he was definitely conservative, but he didn't get out there on a lot of red meat issues really at all. Governor Kemp ran on a very sort of Trump-esque platform in order to win the Republican nomination, and, and it worked for him. 
he got the nomination and he barely squeaked into into office. But I don't think at his core he's really that he's not as much that type as he portrayed, and that's kind of boxed him in on certain issues. Um, so, so, so the Republican approach has been different. You know, we had eight years of Deal, who was kind of you know the more fiscal conservative traditional Republican. And then Kemp, who rode in on a much more populist Trump-style primary campaign. And so Kemp has been a little bit more all over the place. I don't think he's settled in yet. One thing he did that I do not think Governor Deal would have gotten our state involved in is, you know, he managed to go hard on this anti-abortion bill. So we passed a um, six-week abortion ban after six weeks, you know, fetal heartbeat bill. And I think that's something that Deal would have been a lot more nervous about. I can't, you know, know for sure. I don't know exactly what Kemp thinks. Um, He had promised during his primary campaign to sign the toughest you know, most strict abortion law in the country. And I think that, as I alluded to earlier, I think my sense is that he's in a little bit of a tough spot because he made all these promises. I don't think they really align that well with how he would rather govern, but he made all these promises. So I think he's sort of in the position where he's kind of going to be trying to pick and choose certain things to say, I lived up to that campaign promise and to hand something back to the base. But on the other side, he knows full well that he's got this rapidly transforming state and how, what is his path to reelection in 2020? You know, especially if he ends up in a rematch against Stacey Abrams, but, but, you know, even if it were another democratic nominee, what's his path? So one thing that's been a little interesting is that he's, He's appointed a more diverse slate of appointees to the bench and other offices than Governor Deal did. So that's been a little bit interesting. Um, And you wonder if he's trying to sort of pick up some support on the margins going into 2020. Because you have to assume it's going to be really close. And if he could manage to, you know, pull 2% more African-American voters somehow, that could be the difference. And, you know, Trump is launching some big black voter initiative here in Atlanta tomorrow. So it's all very interesting. So they're on the one hand trying to sort of they're trying to play both sides. Like, let's see what we can do to sort of pick up some more minority voters. But we're still going to have to throw some things over to the base. And And it's going to be interesting to see if they're really a lot more aggressive with voter suppression and gerrymandering to try to retain power. Right. That's, that's the thing I was about to ask about is it seems well, like I kept interrupting you. Sorry. No, 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 no. I think uh, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because it's um, in some ways it's a microcosm for uh, the GOP uh, issues, uh, certainly in swing States around the country and how much of it is going to be bridge building and how much of it will be changing the rules of the game essentially through voter suppression and other redistricting and other things in order to to try to stave off the inevitable. And then what's, as a Democrat, sort of how effectively do you think the party is 
responding and positioning itself to to build a, a strong majority, not just in big wave years, but consistently going forward? Well, that's a really interesting question because I don't have any doubt in my mind that some of what we're seeing as far as our pickups of the 6th Congressional District and State uh, Senate and House seats out in the suburbs, that some of those are a Trump backlash. And we can't sit around and say, oh, these are voters that would vote for us if he weren't president again. So I don't think some of those gains are 100% locked in. I think that we need to be making plans to lock in those gains. And we have the same struggles that the Democratic Party does across the nation in trying to figure out, look, you get your majority through swing districts. Well, that's a different tone and policy platform than your safe Democratic districts. And sometimes I don't know that the base understands that that well, or they do, but they think that by going really hard on super progressive ideals and issues, you can bump out, you can excite people enough to compensate for the fact that you're going to turn off the middle in a swing district, which I don't really buy, but that's a big debate that we're having here and around the country. That's going to be the debate that drives the 2020, certainly the presidential, and then all the way down to all these swing districts. So, you know, what what issues do you see that animate across the board, you know, that that do uh, that maybe that do resonate in rural Georgia or suburban Georgia or urban Georgia that um, that you think the Democrats, whether nationally or locally, should be should be talking about? Well, I think healthcare, Absolutely. And, and right now, there's a lot of criticism that can be leveled on Georgia Republicans related to health care. Um, I think infrastructure is really big, too. We have a lot of infrastructure deficits still in Georgia, and they may be sort of the most, you know, noticeable in metro Atlanta with traffic and, you know, yep. but they matter a lot in rural Georgia, too. And along, another infrastructure issue that we have um, that really is, is rural Georgia-based, but I think is important, is broadband. We have a big parts of the state that don't really have reliable internet service. So for a number of years, there's been discussions here about how we could change that. And, you, you know, you, there aren't really easy answers, but it is a really important conversation because otherwise these communities can't keep up with a world that is a, a world that thrives on technology or exists on technology these days. And they also then have a lot less opportunity for economic development. So sort of like the shrinking and economic peril of rural America. I mean, we have that, we have that too in Georgia. And so those are some of the issues. I think that issues like that are important to, voters across the scale. What's interesting to me and what I try to figure out sometimes is, you know, there's kind of the super loud voices that stand out on social media or on, you know, the internet or on, you know, talk radio or what have you. And I just never, I never feel like they're that representative of what actual voters are worried about in their everyday lives. 
Yeah. You know, they're worried about jobs, transportation, healthcare costs, prescription drugs. You know, they've just, they've got to get from point A to point B in their lives. And most people aren't drilled down enough to really know much about the nuances of many debates, um, which unfortunately provides an opportunity for people that are a little bit more willing to exploit that by, you know, riling people up on both sides with sort of half-truths or even untruths. And for the regular folks out there, I mean, some of the things that are going on with Georgia with voter suppression uh, or other efforts like that, does that sort of, does that resonate at all with folks who, who, whose votes aren't being suppressed, but sort of like it's an attack on our basic democracy, do you find? I think that a couple things. So within the realm of anti-democratic issues that American democracy faces, you know, um, gerrymandering, I think people by and large don't like gerrymandering regardless of what side of the aisle you're on. So I think that resonates across the board. People want to feel like their vote counts and that the politicians haven't, you know, predetermined the outcome of the election. Um, I think campaign finance issues resonate pretty well across the board. Voters do understand that big money in politics means that they have, they influence an election in some ways less um, or that they don't, you know, the elections are bought or that there's not full information allowing them to, to properly weigh what candidate they might want to support if there's, you know, millions of dollars coming in from shady, unknowable sources. Um, I think that as far as the trickier ones like okay, you have to have an ID to vote. I do think those still probably divide a little bit more on party lines. I think you can present that in a way that makes it seem like, well, of course you should have to do these couple simple things. And it's really only if you understand the issue a little bit more that it starts to seem that, that you understand what, what it really is about. So I think some are more bipartisan, not maybe among elected officials, but among voters, and some I think are probably still considered more democratic. I mean, there's definitely a big strain among the Republicans here that, well, Democrats make up all these things to explain why they lost, and you know, if they if they lose, they you know they're just going to point to all this stuff, which isn't legitimate. They just you know, they, they lost, they, they can't convince enough voters, that type thing. So I think it's, they think it's like, it's, it's a little bit like what Trump will say about the Washington Democrats. God, they just can't stand it that they lost the 2016 election. So that's why they're doing the impeachment and everything else. Um, it's kind of like that where they're like, Oh, give me a break. You just lost. But now, um, shifting to your career, I mean, uh, you got to experience some of these machinations firsthand, right? Uh, when you were uh, redistricted into a district uh, with action, fellow New Dealer, uh, Scott Holcomb. Can, can you talk about your first decision to run and then what, like, you know, I think 
people think about redistricting uh, and gerrymandering like in the abstract, but what it means when you're actually <laughs> the person who's being uh, uh, redistricted. Yeah, I mean, Georgia's maps after the 2010 census were pretty horrible. Um, there were other states that were just as bad, but um, ours were, re- you know, pretty aggressive and, and really bad. I mean, the goal clearly going in was. You know, they did the whole farce where they were like, well, we're holding these meetings around the state to get input. I mean, that's all a total joke. What they really did is, you know, have these Republican lawyers draw the maps to try to get them to two-thirds supermajorities in both the House and the Senate. And, of course, as many congressional seats as they could possibly do. So they they packed Democrats so that, you know, most of our districts, especially in metro Atlanta, where, you know, there's over 50 percent of the population, uh, the Democratic districts will will all win. We would all win by, you know, these huge margins. And so the margins of Republican victory were narrower to allow for packing more Democrats into fewer districts. So what happened to me and Scott, we had districts that adjoined in North DeKalb County, and they they really messed with the maps in these big Democratic metro Atlanta counties. You know, the districts that emerged from redistricting look nothing like the districts that went in. Nothing. And um, they, uh, it, it took a, a minute, but they have, what they tried to do with my district and Representative Holcomb's district was put us both in, they wanted to sort of try to get rid of both of us. So what they tried to do is, okay, we'll They'll be in the same district, and then we'll make it Republican. So they used 2010 numbers to try. That's what they were operating off of. The district never was quite as conservative as what I think they were hoping, but it was winnable for Republicans, let's put it that way. Based on 2010 numbers, it it had sort of, I think, been a couple points, three points, you know, plus three R. But... That was 2010, which was, you know, a little bit of an outlier, a backlash year for for, um, Democrats. So the goal, of course, would have been pick up, get rid of both of us. But we we didn't want to run against each other. I had gone through a huge campaign to get my state house seat and had unseated a Republican incumbent. And I just wasn't really ready to go through that again. I also had a new baby it was just a lot, and, and I was like, I just can't put my family through that again so quickly. I had a job offer from a policy nonprofit to be the executive director. So, like, long story short, Scott ran. I didn't. Scott won. He had a couple tough races to hold the district, but he never, you know, ended up being in jeopardy. And at this point, he's winning by very comfortable margins. That's partially because he's awesome and partially a reflection of – that part of Georgia has just gotten a lot more democratic. And since Trump has won, no part of the county he and I represent has been voting Republican, which when we first got into office, one would never have have thought that. It's kind of like these outreaches of Orange County voting blue um, in your state. Yeah, interesting. There are just these very solidly Republican areas of DeKalb County that now are like 60-40 Democratic on, in all the most recent elections. So it all worked out, you know. I mean, 
this Senate seat opened up when Jason Carter, another buddy of ours, and I think another, he's a former New Dealer as well, um, ran for governor. And I ran and won. So I only ended up being out of the General Assembly for one term. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, talk a little bit about your, how you balance all this with young kids, these, you run, you run a hard race, you get elected, you get redistricted, uh, you step back, you then jump in for a state Senate seat. Um, you know, uh, for, for people out there and maybe particularly moms out there thinking about, I want to get involved. I want to run. I don't know how I make it all work. Can you describe how you, how you've made it all work? Uh, and it hasn't been, uh, it's not like it's been an easy path uh, for you. So, so. Well, know. one of the t- toughest things has been that the schedule of any elected official doesn't align with normal work hours. And I feel like in the modern era, you know, no matter what your job is, maybe not no matter what, but a lot of jobs are going to have some evening obligations or things you should be at or this or that. Or even if I was, you know, spending a ton of time on my kids PTA or something, I would have, you know, things in the evenings, but certainly as an elected official, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of meetings and speaking engagements that are in the evenings or on weekends. And that makes it a little tough for your family. Um, So I do think you need a supportive partner. And the other thing I've done that's worked really well is I've had an essentially an au pair. Before I had an actual au pair, I had people that sort of functioned like au pairs so that I could change their schedule every week, depending on what my schedule is. Um, And it wasn't, it just wouldn't work for us to have someone that expected to be working between nine and nine and five. Right. Because it doesn't align very well with, with my schedule. And it doesn't really align that great with my husband's either, but, um, but because both of us have, have, things that we need to do in the evening sometimes. So having that flexible childcare has made it work. And has it been, uh, you know, this, again, it's, it hasn't been an easy environment to be a Democrat in Georgia. Um, hopefully it's getting easier. Uh, but, you know, tell me about sort of some of the work that you've done in the legislature that, that, that makes all this, uh, surviving all these shenanigans worthwhile. It is getting easier. I mean, the after eighteen, when it was like the, it was like really the first time since I'd been in Georgia politics that we had an influx of new Democratic talent to the state house, and it was noticeable. It was really noticeable. It, it just made the vibe completely different, and you realize that while. I still think we were able to do good work, and I still very much was honored to hold the state Senate seat prior. It's, there's, there were, you know, some years there. It was kind of depressing when you really got right down to it. But I still think we always, <laughs> you know, did a lot of really good work. And I've had some success in trying to build some legislative coalitions. One of the things that's um, that, you know, I'm always grappling with is you can – you know, we're in the minority. It is our job to hold the minority, the majority accountable. And 
also message in a way that helps voters understand the distinction between what we would do if we were in the majority and what they're doing. So you do, you're going to be criticizing the Republicans and, 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 and you can't, I'm not here to stay silent when I think they're doing the wrong thing. However, that does come at a cost. And so then you have to evaluate how aggressive you're going to be in your criticism of them, because that can also determine whether or not you're, you're allowed to pass any bills at all. They don't really like to let Democrats pass any bills. And here in Georgia, there's really, um, there's no sticks or carrots for the minority party. So, and by that, I mean, like, we don't get to say who, who we're going to put on certain committees. They have complete control of that. We don't have any input in what legislation actually passes. So it's not like D.C. where the Republicans in the House can say, here's who our ranking member is going to be on this committee. So we get, we get even more disenfranchised on, committee, on committees, and sometimes they'll sort of do their best to, A, not really have any Democrats on important committees or have like one or two. Or they'll sort of try to reward people that do what they want and by putting them on important committees. And they don't really like to put people that they think are really effective or might be a threat to them on important committees. So, so this seems- you can work your way into that, but it can take years. And you still need to think about how hard am I going to go criticizing them because – that could mean bye-bye hopes of being on X good, you know, good committee. So one that seems crazy, uh, cause it just seems like you're doing <laughs> yeah, yeah, over like the fact that we don't have any kind of proportional representation on committees. Yeah. Um, something that we we've looked into. Yeah. So, so they have incentives to take people who are actually subject matter experts in a certain area, whether it's agriculture or, uh, you know, judiciary or whatever, and and make sure that they don't get a seat on a committee is um, yeah oh yeah they specifically kept off to it took me um, a couple sessions to get myself on judiciary not get myself before they sort of let, put me on it um, then meanwhile we had two new women attorneys Democrats elected last year and they 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 have refused to put either of them on judiciary. Wow. And then... Yep. And, 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 and they have non-lawyers on. You know, it's that type thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That seems... It's very, very frustrating. And it, it, it hobbles the effectiveness of the minority. And they do it very intentionally. Yeah. I've never even, I've never even heard of that before. Uh, yeah. Not every state, you know, is this allows, allows this um, wow. sort of gutting of what they say. Okay. So... If they were on the phone, they would be like, oh, but we have Democratic chairmen in the Senate, which is true, of committees that do nothing. And they managed to find, well, I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> they, they use them to try to, get, they go to, if they want to try to pick off votes, they'll go to the people they've made chairs. Right. You know, obviously. I mean, that's obviously their strategy. Yeah. That sounds even worse. Um, okay, it's not. It's not awesome. So hopefully you all get the majority back, and 
you can uh, restore democracy to the to the legislature. So how do you move things forward when, as you say, that you don't have carrots and sticks? Yeah. So, gosh, I, I ended up in that whole tangent because I was sort of explaining like how you have to sort of have that chess game. And, and le- you know, passing legislation is kind of a chess game anyway, but, you know, especially when you have to consider all the political dynamics that go into trying to advance an agenda. Well, they aren't here anyway. They The Republicans don't aren't really going to pass that many Democratic bills any year. You know, yeah. they'll pass a few. Um, sometimes the, the House, especially with this influx of new talent, has gotten extremely adept at – Last year, they had a lot of success at getting Republicans, especially ones that are sort of in these more imperiled Republican districts now, to pick up ideas that they'd been working on and carry the ball. So that's been great. And that's always happened. But I saw there was sort of a noticeable amount of that in 2019. So fantastic. Kudos. I've passed two bills. And, you know, it's just things that absolutely sail through without any questioning when a member of the majority is carrying them, you just get drilled down on and ripped apart. And it's, it's very frustrating Wow! because it only happens because you're in the minority. Right. But you know, you can still get some good legislation passed. And I think I have, and I don't, I don't expect that I'm going to pass a bill every session. Like that's, that's not really going to happen. I mean, you have to work three times as hard to get any bill through. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So when you sort of think about your uh, future in public service, how, you know, is, is it worth it uh, to keep fighting in this? Do you see the trends in Georgia um, heading in the right direction? Are you looking at uh, different offices or different ways to serve? Like what, how do you, how do you make the calculation when you only have uh, so many hours in a day and so many frustrations you can endure uh, for a good cause? Right. I mean, we are, it's been really exciting seeing the trends in Georgia and thinking, look, okay, they can gerrymander, but first of all, we're going to see them. And secondly, we're going to win. We're going to start winning statewide offices really soon. So those are all part of my thinking. You know, I've done a decade almost in Georgia politics under total Republican control. And so I can't think of leaving when we're kind of on the cusp of actually getting some power. I mean, it is, I really respect the role of the minority. And so serving in the minority has still been extremely rewarding. And and I do think we've accomplished some good things, and I and I've been gratified to pass some bills that I think made a difference, and and also get some budgetary items. I, I've got the chair of um, appropriations in the Senate has been served a really long time, and and he's a great guy, you know. And and I've been able to get some things in the budget. Those really matter, and they, you know, I don't take that lately. On the other hand, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, it's like you don't even let your mind really go to what a change world it would be to have a Democrat in the governor's mansion. Right. So I'd love to ride this train until we get there. And are there term limits or, or is, uh, okay. So you can, there are no term limits. I mean, we will go into, you know, redistricting. Right. And obviously after what happened to me last time, I definitely don't look lightly on 
on redistricting. On that you process. Know, I'm like, well, you know, we'll see, right? Yeah. On the other hand, you know, we're getting to where competitive s- statewide races are much more, or, you know, reality. So that's another sort of exciting thing to think about. I'm looking forward to hearing more. I do think I do think folks should watch Georgia because uh, it is in many ways an indicator for you know where the parties are going, where the where the politics are going to go, some of the core civil rights issues uh, and voting rights issues of our time uh, are being played out. You know, right there, and I really appreciate you uh, you being on the front lines fighting those fights. Well, thank you. It's it's an honor. It's <laughs> Good. Uh, well, thank you. For and it matters. I think it really matters. So yeah, no, Public and service matters. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, and so folks should uh, folks should track uh, Elena Parent and uh, and Georgia, and uh, hopefully, uh, in doing so, we'll see some good trends uh, for where we're going to end up uh, in a in a new era, and uh, for Georgia and the whole country. Uh, but I think Georgia is going to be part of ushering in a new era. That's what we need. Yeah, you all uh, exactly. Um, so let's we'll keep our fingers crossed, and uh, you keep pounding away in the minority there, uh, uh, and doing the good work. And Elena Parent, thank you for joining us on an honorable profession. Thank you so much for having me. And go go Wahoos. <laughs> wahoo wah. <laughs> wahoo wah. Exactly. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.